Welcome to A Photographer's Life. The channel that takes you behind the curtain into the world of professional architectural photography. Join us now for an episode with some of America's premier architectural photographers. Today's broadcast comes from a recent Zoom meeting of the Association of Independent Architectural Photographers. This discussion is led by AIAP Director Alan Blakely. We hope you enjoy the show. If you do, please let us know by liking this episode and subscribing to this channel. Now, on with the show. I want to welcome everyone to this April meeting of AIAP. The topic that came up again and again for people that wanted to revisit the licensing topic. And rather than me kind of present an outline of and steer this discussion, I think we probably ought to see what the what the issues are and the things that might be of interest to you to talk about. There's some here um, that have had a lot of experience doing licensing. I know, Barry, you probably have a lot to contribute on this subject and uh, a few others. So um, is there anybody that, that wants to start out with a, a question or a problem or something that they've been concerned about with regard to licensing? Well, since you uh, since you called me out, let me just say, uh, <laughs> one of the reasons that I do have a lot to say, because people that know me know I have a lot to say about things, whether I know anything <laughs> about them or not, uh, is that I also teach professional practices. So I've had to, uh, anybody that's, that teaches knows you have to go out and learn or you, you are, uh, you're a bad teacher. <laughs> so I've had to pay attention to the preconceptions that architectural photographers uh, have, but because my professional practice is teaching is not, is about photography in general. I cover everything from fine art to weddings to everything. Um, you know, there are things to be learned uh, to do and not to do by the way that other people license. And one of the, so my, the first thought that comes to mind is that when I first turned pro 17 years ago, after having been a contractor for many years, um, was that a lot of architectural photographers were leaning on um, what commercial advertising photographers do, which is very limited licensing for a strict period of time, very strict usage and all that. And the more I got into it, uh, the more I realized uh, not all, but most architectural photographers don't follow that model. Um, and they don't follow that model because they won't get clients <laughs> otherwise. And so that's something, but there's still, you know, some things to consider there, right? You can limit licensing to not include a full page ad in Architectural Digest, for instance, and those kinds of things, or, or those kinds of uh, issues. So that was something that's always been on my mind is what are the preconceptions that we kind of go in with? that sometimes get in our way, my way, when I'm in, in negotiations. Yeah, I, I think that there's a little bit of a battle that's gone on over the years between architects who had no concept of this and, and then architectural photographers who may have come from a commercial background, like you say, yeah. and they're used to licensing things for a year or so. And uh, it, those two worlds collided. So <laughs> it's been interesting. Well, yeah. I mean... Even even photographers that didn't come from a commercial background, you know, if you, I'm a stalwart member of ASMP, I've been a director, all the rest of it. So you're around, you know, it's aspirational uh, to want to be uh, doing that kind of work because, as we all know, that's where the money is. Sure. <laughs> you know, 
if you want to have a, a second or third home or an apartment in Paris, don't become an architectural photographer unless you marry well, right? But you could do that if you're a famous uh, photographer. So it's that kind of aspirational thinking. So people think, well, I can take that model and I can do that too. Um, anyway, and I think that clients also, they hear just enough of that to think, oh, this is going to be, you know, this is going to be, any, he's going to be Annie Leibovitz. He's yeah. going to be a screamer. Right. Or, yeah. or some, you know, I'm making this up. You know what I'm. No, I, I, I see where you're coming from. And I, I totally agree. Scott, you had a comment. I come <laughs> from a advertising background. Okay. And, uh, I did charge licensing fees for a variety of work, not everything. But the things that I charged licensing fees for in that world were pretty much geared toward uh is either a single use or maybe uh, a local use and very seldom uh, uh, regional or national use. Most of it was pretty local. Okay. And so it made sense to apply a fee to that at that time. Now I was pretty young and I really didn't know what I was doing. So I had to learn, you know, kind of as I was going along, but then when I shifted into architectural work, which I do full time now, um, I, the first thing that I learned back in the day was everybody wants full unlimited usage of an image. There's all, in, in Cleveland, Ohio, there's no arguing with people about that. They just don't understand why they would have to pay for a secondary use of any kind. And uh, it's my belief that here where I am, uh, I would lose clients if I tried to do that and, and make them pay a fee again and again for usage. And that was that was something that I decided back, you know, 10, 10 or more years ago that I had to come up with a way to charge a licensing fee uh, to my client as well as to a secondary client or multiple clients, make it fair for everybody because uh, there's, I don't want to argue with people. I don't want to get into conversations about why because they just don't want to hear that. And I'm pretty well split between architectural firms and contractors. The architects have learned more and more and come up to speed with this a lot in just the last five years. So yeah. the contractors, they don't get it and they don't want to uh, have any yeah. conversations about it. So, yeah. so basically I've come up with a, a thing that works for me, which is to, I build in a licensing fee for my client initially and then if there are third, third party uh, participants that want to buy into it, I just add the license equal licensing fee to what I'm charging my client in to the estimate. So uh, and then I have a conversation with my client. I'm, I tell them that their licensing fee is built into the cost of the photography. So when they go to split up the fee or the total invoice among the participants, the best notion that I give them is that the, the easiest way to do it is just split it up, you know, either half or a third or however many additional parties there are to just split the total between them. Because everybody's paying the same licensing fee and the rest of the costs that are involved in the shoot are basically post-production, some mileage, maybe travel, uh, hotel or whatever. And so everybody should pay a part of that. And, and, and then 
I kind of try to explain, you know, you get a lot of people who really just want one photo, maybe two. Nobody, a lot of the contractors don't want to purchase the whole project, you know, might be 10, 15 shots. So, and they have a hard time understanding, well, why am I paying this amount if I only want one or two photos? So what I tell my clients, and it, this is a handshake deal, and this is not necessarily the way anybody else does it. It's just what seems to be working here is, you know, I, I tell them that if a third party doesn't want to uh, take part in this group purchase, to have them contact me after the fact directly, and I'll deal with them directly. And so that allows them uh, to purchase one or two photos at a, <clears throat> at a cost that I've established uh, per photo of that shoot and allow them to buy one or two. They don't have to buy the whole shoot and match. They can just purchase one or two images at the fee that I have established for those images. And they'll get the same um, usage rights as the uh, my client. And it's a done deal. I'm not wanting to invent reinvent the wheel. And so I try to keep it real simple. It's worked for it's it's worked for me for quite some time like this. And I do have a pretty steady flow of this combination of architectural firms as well as contractors. And then there's interior design firms and some just single individuals. But uh, everybody seems to understand the setup that I've got. And I've I haven't had too many people question what it is that I'm doing. I've had to learn how to put it into words though, so that they understand what they're getting. Yeah. And that's probably the biggest hurdle. But it's been very successful at this point, and I don't intend to change it. The only the only thing that I would uh, like to know more about is I think my licensing fees are a little on the lower end. Um, I've been a little nervous about raising them up too much. Uh, so I have a, a photography fee for my time, half day, full day, and then the licensing fee on top of that. And that's and that licensing fee is what it is that I add into the estimate for these other parties. So, you know, I feel like my licensing fees are on the low end, which is the only thing that really bothers me or concerns me. I, I feel like, well, maybe I could get a little bit more out of this, but I haven't really pushed the envelope there to see where the boundaries are. So. Anybody got thoughts on that? I have a, yeah, Chris. Well, my situation uh, very close to Scott's. Uh, I tweak it a little bit differently because I do run into, you know, exactly what he was saying about some vendors only want to buy one or two shots. And so while I don't charge by the shot, I charge by the job and, you know, day rate and post-production, things like that. When all is said and done, uh, I will divide it out on a per shot basis. So I can license individual shots and, I mean, I'll give you a good example. I just 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 this morning built a three day job. It was twenty four shots. The architect, uh, architect and contractor were all in on on the twenty four shots. Uh, so you know already there's a whole licensing, another licensing set from one or the other of them. But then the, a few of the other vendors came in and you know one wanted four shots, one wanted five shots, and and so by 
being able to break it out on a per shop model, I'm getting that that extra revenue that I wouldn't get if those vendors were required to buy all 24 shots. But I do it a little differently in that I run it all through my client because, as Scott was saying, you know, you keep adding this up and you say, well, here's your creative fee and here's a license. And there's another license to split it by two, another license to split it by three, another license to split it by four. So every time my client finds another someone to to participate in the shoot, their price is going down. Right. So yeah. it makes my clients, my sales reps, because you know they're they're shaking the bushes and going, hey, who was the lighting vendor? Who was the furniture person? Who did the flooring? You know, who did who did whatever the plant that sold you know licensed pieces of of green walls. Uh, and so while it is a little cumbersome to to coordinate, uh, my clients are more than happy to do it because every time they get another participant, their price goes down. And and every time they get another participant, my licensing fees are going up. So, you know, I think it's a, a win-win. I do bill it all separately. So I, you know, I don't I don't tell my client, well, here's what you do and go split it up. I bill it all separately with the caveat to my client that says if I have trouble collecting from someone, I'm coming back to you to be some muscle here because you're bringing them to me. You're saying, oh, you know, this vendor is uh, wants to participate. And I only had trouble once and uh, getting, getting someone who, who just completely backed out or tried to back out of the deal on the architect went to him and said, no, you're not doing this or we're not using you for a year. It was a, a mm. mill worker. Wow. So, uh, so that worked out, that worked out pretty well. Um, but, but also to Scott's point about raising licensing fees, I've had the same thought and, uh, and so started uh, eking them up a while ago. I mean, pre COVID, and uh, and I got pushback, um, not just from uh, existing clients, but you know a few relationships with. Uh, I can think of one, an architect that I, I served on a committee with, and he hired me for a job, and I I decided to quote it at the higher licensing rate. And we've known each other for years, but this was the first, you know, photographer architect relationship we had. And he came back to me and he said, you know, we we deal with other photographers, and his licensing fees on the high side. So, um, you know, that gave me a little bit of information uh, that that maybe even though I thought I was low or or feel it's low, that there isn't that much room to go up. Uh, I also, you know, another another um, good resource, I think, for all of us, because because for most of us, I think the shoots are driven by the architects and then the, the contractors sort of, you know, come on secondarily. But I happen to have a, a really good contractor client. That I'm very close with. It's, you know, she and I've worked together for years, and she's a really good sounding board for pricing questions. You know, without getting into specific numbers, but just, but because as a contractor, normally they're stuck with whatever photographer the architect brings along. So whether she wants to or not, she ends up dealing with all different kinds of photographers. If she gets to pick the photographer, it's me. But if she's dealing with a different architecture firm, she might have a different photographer. So she sees what everybody in town is charging, and so. She's been a really good resource for me to go to. And as I said, not asking specific numbers, but just say like, where, you know, where does this fall? How, mm. how is, how is this rate or how is that rate? And um, so if you have those kinds of relationships, I, I, I use them for general conversations to see about rates, but yeah, I would like to raise my licensing. I think it's low, but I tried to, and I got, I got a little bit kicked. So. Well, you can please some of the people some of the time, but you can't please all the people all the time. So you just have to do that little push until you find the edge. 
Yeah. Well, I can I can speak to that, and then I'll go to you, to you June. But um, I did push mine up, um, and what I found happened is that my clientele shifted, um, and it took a little work to make that happen. But I lost a lot of my local work uh, as a result of doing that. But I picked up some national work um, that was more lucrative, um, and so in the local market. You know, I live in Utah, but uh, less than half of my work is here locally. Um, and the reason for that is just price, because I've got people who don't even have any concept of licensing. They charge a fee and then however many parties want to participate and, and have those images, they split that single fee down and that's it. And there's no mention anywhere of a license or uh, anything like that, and and the images get shared all over the place, and and there are photographers in the market who even shoot on spec with the hope that they can then sell those images. So I've got you know people who are working behind me sometimes on a photo shoot, uh, hoping that they can uh, charge less and and license the images to somebody else. But it is a kind of a risk, and uh, it does it does come with some consequences. So I that's a careful line to walk. And if you have an ally, like Chris mentioned uh, in the market that can kind of steer you to where you need to be, that's a huge advantage. I don't have that. That's a good point, Chris. I, <laughs> I think that's an excellent thing to pursue. I don't uh, June, have that either. I, I, <laughs> I've looked into that in the past. Cleveland, Ohio is not a real, but used to have a lot of reps walking the streets you know, 25, 30 years ago, mm -hmm. and that became less and less. And then when, as far as I can recall, around 2000 or shortly after digital technology really started to take hold here, and I think we were just a little bit behind the rest of the country, I still had a studio in downtown Cleveland, and uh, I didn't know anybody that was repping there was only one or two that I had heard about, but I never met, and and that was it. And they were repping for photographers that were shooting advertising yeah. projects. And when I made the jump over to the architectural work, that was a it was a wide open field for me at the time that I did that. But there wasn't anybody doing any kind of repping, and uh, I have a. I, I don't have a lot of contacts that I used to have at this point. So, you know, finding that person that could uh, help bounce ideas off of and hear what's going on around town, that'd be great. But I just don't know where to look for that. Yeah, she's a she's the marketing person for a contractor. So where are you located? I'm in the Washington, D.C. market. Does she want to work in Cleveland a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> I'll pay her. <laughs> Well, I think that's also the thing about a rep is they make their money off of you. So I'll go back to that slightly depressing statement. You know, advertising photographers, that's where the money is. So I think it's really unusual for architectural photographers to have reps. I, I don't, I, the only ones I know that might have reps are, you know, they're on the road all the time and they're making very good money, but that they're a tiny little portion of. Most of us are just trying to make a middle-class living, which is, in fact, what I think most photographers are doing. But 
um, again, the advertising photography, that's where the money is, and then moving into commercials and so forth. So all those people have reps. Right. Uh, just as an aside on that, I got an email from the Department of Labor with some statistics about architectural photography. It was quite depressing. <laughs> the United States average for uh, annual income for an architecture photographer was $23,000. Yeah. Ooh, well, I know we're all doing better than that. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I'm making 24. <laughs> I uh, and I don't know if this is interesting, but I don't know where you'd follow up the lead, but I got a call from uh, CoStar, who's a oh. uh, big commercial leasing company. And uh, and she said, and I'm, I know I'm not the only person they called, but uh, but she said that they were, you know, looking to, quote, fill out their team and looking for an architectural photographer. We talked for a while, and then I realized, wait a minute, she's She's offering me a job or offering me the the uh, ability to apply for a job. And and I I told her, I said, you know, I, I was flattered and I, I wasn't interested. I said, I've been doing this a long time. And the thought of actually getting up and going to somebody's office every morning is uh, <laughs> it's not something that appeals to me. But I asked her what it paid. And she said it, it started at 70. And, uh, and plus benefits. They give you a car. You know, there's a lot of travel involved, I'm sure. Uh, and... And all I could think of, I mean, it was a great conversation, and, and uh, I think, and I, I think a good opportunity for someone who would want to do architectural photography that way. But all I could think of was that, you know, she's saying she's raving about these pictures on my website, and I'm thinking, well, you know, there's a lot of time that went into those pictures, <laughs> and an architect was willing to pay for a long time for me to go shoot that stuff and to edit that. And I can just imagine that if you're shooting for, you know, a commercial real estate company like CoStar. You know they're they're going to give you twenty buildings a day that you need to go cover, and that's right. They're going to want what they see on my website, but they're going to give you six minutes to take a picture. So that's right. I got that same phone call. Oh, you did? Yeah, twice. I I got the phone call twice too, and then I had another one of my uh, mentor, architectural photographer in Indiana. He got the call, and we started talking about it. And that broke it down, and they own the copyright to it. So this yeah. we wouldn't even have this conversation if you know it was like on CoStar. That's right. Yeah, I mean you're an employee, so it's it's, That's it's right. employee work that the employer owns it. It's not even a work for hire. You're an employee. I've gotten uh, two requests recently to shoot 3D Matterport uh, photographs. Yeah, I've gotten yeah, some got of that. that. Yeah. I didn't really know what it was till I did the research, but. That's kind of the same game. You just like go in and throw a camera around and then process it. And right. There's nothing, you know, spectacular or whatever. Yeah, you're a Matterport yeah. technician. You're not a photographer. You're a technician. Yeah. I, mean, I think I, I would have. I think I would have done CoStar maybe like four years ago when I actually started. That would have helped a lot. You know, just to get sure. in the ropes. But, you know, when you I'm four years in now converting from a filmmaker and there's no way I'd do that. Um, yeah, right. because now hey, I that, know too much. Yeah, that's that brings up that brings up an interesting conversation that you just mentioned about film or shooting video. Who mm -hmm. all is shooting video? Anybody shooting video? I only shot some sort of some training training videos for a client, the city. Seattle. Do you find that the architects, especially who could use it, are not interested because they don't know much about it, or they don't? They, maybe they think they're going to have to pay more. Uh, I don't think they're interested. That that I could tell. 
Well, I've been I've been shooting some video and I'm planning to shoot more. It's it's very basic stuff right at the moment. Um, although I've done a few video projects with some good firms and I, I don't have enough to put on my website, so I don't even bother with it yet. Um, but I, I've been pushing this on them for a little while, not heavy, but just mentioning it. I read something just recently. I read an article not too long ago online, of course, about how video equipment is coming up higher and higher, you know, 4K cameras, 8K cameras, you know, they gave a timeline for this over the next 30 years. I think their timeline drew it out to about 2035 or something. But the whole thing was based on the premise of these video cameras are getting bigger files and bigger files. And they're nearly to the point right now where you could get an eight by 10 image off of a single frame and it's excellent quality. And, you know, the days of doing print work for the walls, that's not over, but it's it's not a big part of my business at all. Everything I shoot now is is it's all digital. It's all online. Uh, the biggest thing they generally produce would be an occasional wall print 1620. But most everything is small in-house use and for, you know, uh, ward supplements and uh, what have you. But so the, the premise here of the whole story is that the. Video technology is going to eventually crush still photography in the commercial realm, not in the fine art, just in the commercial realm, because 80% of everything that people are seeing nowadays is online. It's, it's all in your, your cell phone or on your computer, and the image doesn't need to be very big to satisfy that requirement. And so more and more, if you read about it, just more and more video constantly. It's just a, it's unbelievable how much is out there. So uh, the whole thing was just about how still photography is going to be, even digital still photography commercially is going to be a dinosaur. We'll be all retired in Florida by that time. But the point is, I want, I don't want to retire. I want to keep working. So I've been working on video and getting geared up to make a pretty nice statement about that. And hopefully there'll be, if I have a couple that are interested in, you know, from here, we'll see what happens, but I just wondered how the rest of you uh, have been looking at that. Okay. Go. Yeah. Well, Scott, I don't think you have anything to be afraid of because like I came from the filmmaking world and I wanted to enter the AEC strictly doing video, mm -hmm. video work. Um, but I was just thinking, wow, um, you know, if an architect or construction uh, had a project, not all of them are photographed. And even the ones that are photographed, maybe one out of 20 requires video. I would have been sitting on my butt, you know, getting a day job if that was the case. And even in it now this long and just seeing it, photos, if they were to do anything media related, it's still photo first because photo goes on the RFP. And photos goes on Instagram, LinkedIn, and all that stuff. So it's still photo first and foremost before they do video. So I agree. Going into the photo side, you'll it'll, they'll always go to you before video, always. So that's why I had to transition. I was like, I'm struggling. What's happening? Oh, okay. One out of twenty projects, they might they might do video. So yeah, I think there's still images. I think the still image is still going to be the primary uh, medium. For yes. For architecture um and, and and always will be um 
for me, where video is fitting in is with uh, drone video. Um, my clients don't really care about doing a walkthrough video. I don't do real estate photography. The only thing that they do want to see is, is site video that shows the project and not from a high altitude where we're looking at air conditioners and roof vents, but you know, at a lower altitude where we're looking at the project at an elevation that still gives you the ability to look at the project from a reasonable point of view. And those I've been doing as an add-on. I did it for a spec uh, for a number of clients. And since then, it, the clients have then requested that that be added. So if I've got the drone up, but I'm shooting stills, it's not a big deal to do a battery change and, uh, you know, do a point of interest loop or, um, you know, do some kind of a cinematic move and then give them those with a film dissolve in between the clips and let them do what they want with it on their website or hand it off to their video guy. The, the truth is most of my clients already have in-house video people and that are shooting the stuff for them. And so I don't, that's not a market that is even open to me, but, but I can add something to that, you know, to my project, some, add some value by giving them video that their guys aren't capable of doing. And so that's one of the things that I've found uh, where video has become a nice little niche, but it's not me walking through with a gimbal or something uh, like that. Uh, it's, it's all with the drone. Uh, let's bring up a, a point though that I've noticed and I I had a after production price point for single uh, images, I would charge a certain rate for high resolution and certain for low resolution. And I'm finding more and more buying the low resolution uh, mm -hmm. because they just use it on their computer or their website and they're not making the big prints from the high resolution. I wondered if anybody else has uh, found that at all. Interesting. Not me. No. I don't. I don't offer two resolutions. They they pay for the high for that exact reason. That um, a lot of them really only want it on a website or something like that. So if you give them the option of something less expensive, I mean, all the work has gone into making that, and then you then you know you're saying, well, okay, I'll give you these two options, and I I always figured it would just cut into my profit margin by giving them a lower priced option. Yeah. I'm beginning to see that. I think I'm going to just have one option from now on because, like you say, the videos I shot were, were 4K. And even the time-lapse camera that I was I set up was a high resolution. And they can just take a single frame and use whatever they want. But like you say, all the work went into making it. Why should, why should we just give away all the work behind it for a low-resolution right. shot? Right. I kind of looked at the I kind of looked at the the uh, relationship between film and digital. When you shot film, you didn't have an option to do low res, so they always got high res. And I I don't know what to do with a low res image particularly. It's just more work to fool around with. That's just me. So I I've never offered that. I've uh, never really had anybody ask me. I used to offer a, I used to just kick in a look, set of low reses for the heck of it, but everybody can, everybody can res it down themselves. So. Yeah. Well, I, what I've done is, uh, and maybe I'm, I may be uh, behind the times. I, I always 
And it's including in my pitch letter, I say, I'm going to give you two uh, formats. I'm, they're, they're all JPEGs. I'm going to give you 2,000 pixel wide, 72 PPI, sRGB. And I lay it out so that there's no misunderstanding and a full res uh, uh, sRGB 300 PPI JPEG. And I did it. I started doing that because I found that people would take my full res images. They didn't know how to convert them. Then they would complain to me how they looked on the web. And I realized, well, they, how hard, especially with Lightroom, I mean, it's a button. It's yeah. so simple to do. And, and even more to that, because you can custom name things, you can append things in Lightroom. Uh, I put the word print or web in every folder and on every single image. So there's just no chance of misunderstanding. And I and I don't get very many com complaints or questions anymore because of that. Um, and it makes me look generous and open and blah, 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 whatever. I, I think that's a good point. I, I've, start, I've done that for a number of years where I offer a TIFF file. I give them a TIFF folder and I give them a JPEG folder. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. And so they don't, I do. they don't screw things up uh, yeah. that way. And it's solved uh, you know, a lot of problems. Uh, generally, people that are not doing it for publication don't care about the TIFF folder. They may not even download it, yeah. but, but uh, the JPEG folder they will. And so, but I, you know, there are a lot of the stuff, things that I shoot that go for publications, and they want to see that TIFF. And so, I have to give them those two folders. But I don't charge extra for the two folders. You know, like Barry said, it's just a click in Lightroom and just make a new folder and yeah. at a new format. So. So I, can I go back? Can I go back to video a little bit? Because I'm really interested in this, and I'm just dipping my toes into it. Mm -hmm. And I had a couple of thoughts. One is that the new um, Blackmagic Pocket Camera 6K Pro produces 20 megapixel stills. So those are plenty big enough for almost everything. Those are raw, uh, I believe. Uh, June may know more about this than I do. The, my thinking has been, as uh, uh, because I, I think that there is a market for it, at least uh, certainly for residential, behind residential, that they are smart enough or experienced enough to recognize the difference between real estate videos, which is the most common thing you see, um, most of which are not very good, um, but have a lot of music. And... Um, <laughs> Usually the same music. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's cheaper licensing that way. And uh, so my thinking is to, to get a camera that shoots either raw or log video, which is, you know, like for those that don't know, it's kind of halfway between raw and, and straight out of the camera, JPEG, so to speak. Um, because for architectural photography, you basically can't really light. If you do, like you were saying, Alan, walk through with a gimbal, you're going to have two or three light sources coming at you all at the same time. And the only thing that's going to handle that is a pretty big file, mm -hmm. uh, either a raw file, which is really huge in video, or a log file where you can mess around with it. I, I think, too, that the standards for color uh, accuracy are not as extreme with video because your eye is not going to sit on it for that long. You know, it's, you're telling a different kind of story. So that was kind of my thinking. And I was looking at the, I'm a Canon shooter. I was looking at the R5 
um, but also the Black Magic, which is a fantastic camera. <clears throat> and the new one um, is something that professionals are starting to look at in a way that they hadn't looked at it before. But there's others. There's a Panasonic. They're all DSLR style video, uh, video capable or video first cameras. So, um, because I do think there's a market for it, but you have to learn how to do it. I'm in the process of teaching myself or not teaching myself, but learning how to do uh, DaVinci Resolve and, um, and how to shoot and, and all those kinds of things. And the, the power is unbelievable. It's like Lightroom on steroids. So, yeah. But having you said that, Barry, it kind of converges where before when I was driving, I was listening to you guys as far as like commercial photography, and that's where the money is at. And the, the clients would don't want to pay for it. Now you're using really high end um, video camera um, to do that because that's more like filmmaking. Because um, what what um, Blackmagic shoot is um, the higher end, they shoot ProRes or Cinema D and G, which is like the same thing that Lightroom happens. So then yeah. they get the files. So if you get cinema DNG, then you get exact file image. So that's great. If you shoot the other way, the shutter speed, because you know, with photo, you always want high shutter so everything is sharp. But in video, you only could be uh one, you know, two times the frame rate. So frame rate's 30 frames, your shutter speed is 160. So there's always going to be a little blur depending on the file you get from it. So that's why I never have extract the photo from a video ah. because the shutter speed is always a little bit blurry. If you yeah. want a little bit blurry. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so only after thing, a drink, <laughs> <laughs> tell the client that, you know, bring them out on the client. <laughs> yeah. I think, yeah. I think something. So, um, and then for, as far as like a camera, you really want to get something low light, which has a smaller, uh, megapixel file per sensor. It's almost like the Sony, um, one of the Sony's, like the A7S has a 12 megapixel file, but the low light is ridiculous. Like it could shoot in the dark, but then right. you can't really extract the photo from that because right. it's 12 megapixel. So well, it's like, it, there's always change. Well, I never think about actually using the same, despite what, what it, I think what it sounded like. I, I've always assumed I wouldn't necessarily use the same camera to shoot or oh, I gotcha. be extracting something. I mean, the, the those... Yeah, so some cameras do it, and the uh, having the smaller sensor, the it, they, the Super Thirty Five is what they call it. It's basically a, a, APS APSC um, yeah. allows you greater depth of field, which is what architectural photographers want. Video is all focused on uh, exact shallow depth focus, of field, shallow depth of field, which is like death Stop. for <laughs> architectural <laughs> photographers, like. Why is this photo out of focus? Well, no, no, the, the jar right there in the corner, that's in focus. You know, you can't do that. Yeah. To, so, I, no, I always assumed it would be different. I always assumed the I would switch cameras or at least switch uh, how the camera is used and and do the gimbal, do the walkthrough and oh, try God. to do something. But, you know, if you look at when I look at uh, a real estate photographers, um or real estate video in particular, you can see that there are moves in there that are acceptable for people like us. Um, uh, there's cutting that's that's decently done. Um, but you know, those video, those real estate people who do it all the time, it's a it's a, so much of it is automated, right? And it's not about quality, it's about quantity. But every now and then you can see, oh, that would work. So that's kind of where I'm 
I may be lying to myself, which is a skill I've developed over the years. Um, <laughs> but I think there may be a way to do it. But you also have to convince the clients to pay for it because video is just more expensive. It just is. It just takes too much, right? Yeah. So that was what you ran into also, right? Was a cost issue? Yeah, it was like, it was the most ironic thing. I'm like, um, I'm doing way more video. Um, there's no Photoshop. I mean, you could do After Effects to remove items, but that costs a lot of money yeah. um, and time. So I was like, how am I? So that's why also I transition to the photography part. I was like, this is so much easier. I'm getting paid better. <laughs> um, it's it's the ironic thing, but yeah, you do more work with video. You get paid less respective to what you're doing. Yeah. And I think that's why um, originally when I reached out to Alan, um, actually this is uh, like, how do you price the video in respect to the photography? Like, is it the same more? Cause it should technically be more, but clients would want it less. So then you kind of like, you know, the theme is you talk yourself out of the business by going, yeah, you know, $15,000 video, you lose them. Well, they're looking at real estate photography, which might be 1500 for video or less. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so that's their, that's how they've learned what it's worth. And they don't necessarily understand what the quality is. I mean, people, clients who understand quality are always easier to deal with in terms of getting paid decently. But, you know, we can only teach them so much. They have to be self-educated, I think. Yeah. You know, one thing that's worked for me is to hire somebody who does video when there is a situation where uh, the project actually has to have video involved in it and the client mm -hmm. has requested it. And so I hire a videographer and then I act as director. Yeah. And by doing that, um, they're getting my eye, but this other person's skill and I don't have to buy the equipment, so I don't have to bring a slider and a jib and everything else to the party. Um, I have somebody else that you know is that has invested the equipment, knows how to use it. I just have to direct what it is that they're doing. And you know, that's, that's what well for me. Well, that's what big time commercial and fashion photographers do. All the people I know that have transitioned, or well, and this is going back into the '50s, so it's it's like it's not new. All the people that transition to commercials mm -hmm. are directors. Yeah. You know, they know how to frame and they know how things should look, but they leave it to the gaffers to light. They right. leave it to the DPs to actually get the. And of course, then there's audio because without good audio, if you need audio, there's nothing. There's no good video without good audio. Right. Right. Yeah. That's a model that's worked for me. And I, I don't do yeah. it a ton, but I do have several clients that yeah. require that and and the video that we put together at the end will have some interviews which you know i end up conducting the interview and and that kind of thing but it i only add my eye to the process and let yeah. the videographer do the rest of the work so do you do you do, uh, do you participate in the editing uh, very rarely. They'll show me an edit and then I'll make comments from there and, and they'll make adjustments. So we may go through two or three edits yeah. uh, to have it be something that I approve, but I don't do any of the hands-on editing, those kinds of things. Uh, I just don't have the time. It's, it's it's not what I do best. Yeah. That's also the issue with video is, uh, is the post-production on it. You know, we one thing to learn the the learning curve for Lightroom or Photoshop, but 
you know, the curve for Final Cut or Premiere or After Effects, and all three of which I've edited in, that's a steep damn curve. And yeah. I mean, so that's... And you get paid less. You know, clients are, are, like Barry said, clients are looking at what a real estate videographer would cost. And what you're thinking is, what would a true video crew cost? That would cost a whole hell of a lot more than I'm getting paid to do the architectural the still photography. So I end up on on the small jobs that need some video. I just end up, you know, charging them my same rate, which is obviously more than a real estate photographer, but less than a whole video crew. But um, but also the point Barry made about sound is so incredibly true. People will people will watch crap. They'll watch stuff jiggly or out of focus or too bright or too dark, but they won't listen to crap. I mean that that's why. Yeah. Radio's been around for a hundred years because right? people will listen to things and conjure it up in their head. But um, if they can't hear it, they're they're gone. They'll tune right out. And mm. suddenly, when you add that layer of sound into production, video production, oh man, you're in the whole other realm of equipment and skill level and things that you need to know about. So it's it video unless it's a quick clip here, a quick clip there. It's tough unless you really do it for a living. Or you learn photo is just so much easier and uh, ROI is better. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, but, it, you know, yeah, it's like that's that's the whole conversion. I guess the other thing right now, I'm actually in the process, too, of figuring out how to do the whole copyright, like, you know, raw files of video and then, you know, third party. Like if I shoot for or film, if I film for an architect and, you know, their client wants it or I'm I'm getting a little bit. A feeling of that right now so i'm trying to work on how to um, do the copyright for the video as well because just like photo you know there's a share share splitting cost splitting figuring that out so if any of you guys have experience on that that'd be great you actually give up copyright to anything no but then no. most people but so, you know like we were talking about like how some clients are educated on copyright with photos some are right. like what that's even worse on video well, uh, yeah, copyright's like a whole nother ball of wax. I don't, I don't get too many people that are looking for that. Occasionally, someone will ask about it, and I'll ask them why do they need, why do they think they need copyright? And if they say, well, we want to be able to use oh. it, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I meant license. No, yeah, I'm not oh, selling oh, copyright. Oh, oh. It's not licensing. So licensing the photo, just like licensing the video. Okay, that's um, different. My bad. Yeah, yeah, not 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 selling the copyright. And then, uh, well, I would I, sell it for the right price. <laughs> that's right. Why not? Yeah, but, but how often do you get that price? That's the question. I have never had it. Out. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, you know, here's my answer to to that, which is that I don't I don't ever talk about all that. I mean, right. uh, you know, the, the this is what I run into all the time, both when I was when I'm teaching, but also I see it on Facebook all the time. Somebody says, "Well, I got a request for a buyout." Well, you know. This this may be changing a little bit, but buyout essentially is is not a legal term of art, and no. and so clients think you're asking. Photographers hear buyout and they hear copyright transfer. Clients say buyout and they think I just want wide usage. So what I've done in the past is just say okay, yeah, we do. I do that, no problem. And then I write the license, and it has broad usage. Um, nothing that I feel bad about. And then I've actually had one client who had requested buyout come back to me and say, 
oh, this is great. And by the way, Barry, we understand we can't license this to anybody else. So I thought, wow, okay. So I think that video can operate. I, I don't see why video should operate any any differently. And I think video, one thing that is different is that for the producers of the video, they own the copy. They are they have ownership of the work. You know, the 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 DP, the sound person, the editor, they don't get to use this stuff, uh, you know, unless the photographer licenses it to them to use as a reel or something like that. So I think there's it's pretty much similar. Um, okay. You can restrict the license for video in the same way that, you know, if I'm not going to let a commercial client uh, give away my photo to Anderson Windows, uh, yeah. I don't have to let a video client use it any other way. Yeah. When I was driving and listening to you guys early, I, I missed the part where you guys, if you guys, um, if you separate license as far as like um, social media publication and stuff like that. And I'm wondering if that would also apply because one of the things is like you could uh, have your client post it, but you know how sometimes their client would share post that. So it's still using yours, but it's not under the license, is it? So that's kind of the, the gray area. Well, here's something to think about in that respect, because I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, you have to draw a line somewhere. How much mm -hmm. time do you want to spend chasing down everything that you see? Now, I mean, I, <clears throat> I do keep an eye on things. And when I see something that got passed off inappropriately without being paid for, I'll make a phone call and ask for the licensing number. And when they can't produce it, I'll say, well, then I'll send you the invoice and you just pay it. And I'll explain the details. But um, I I have a little different take on this probably than a lot of people. I'm in business to stay in business. Uh, I don't work nationally. I work pretty regionally. And I'd say 80% of my clients are repeat customers and they basically want to use an image or a series of images or whatever, unlimited. And so I build my estimate. Uh, the text is all about how they can use it in an unlimited sense. I don't, I don't restrict them. They have unlimited usage of my images, Got but it. they can't lend, give, or sell, or trade in any format color, black and white, or digital media to any third-party individual, company, organization, et cetera. It's for their firm's exclusive use. And I build the cost around that. So I'm telling myself, I'm giving them unlimited use, and I'm charging them the X, and I'm happy with that. And it's also with an understanding that they'll They'll tell anybody who comes to them and say, hey, we saw those photos. We'd like to get those. How do we How can we get those? And they'll politely tell them to contact Scott Pease directly. And then I'll do the do the deal with them and sell them what they want. So it works. That works out for me. And I don't feel bad about the way I'm licensing the image or selling my services because I'm content with what I'm getting. And I don't see any reason to restrict anybody. That just that just gives them a reason to say, well, we'll keep looking for another guy next time. So mm -hmm. that's just for me, though. And I've gotten 
I've gotten referrals. I've I've licensed images exactly that way yeah. mm -hmm. for people's yeah. And why not? Yeah. I mean, these people again, they're not going to put an ad up in Architectural Digest or Dwell right. or something, yeah. you know? Right. So I, just I worldwide know. usage of their uh, the photos, yeah. Worldwide. You know, I don't know if anybody's. I don't know if anybody's, except for Mr. Blake here. I don't know who all's working nationally or internationally <laughs> or cosmically. I don't know, but you know, if you if you do have those kinds of clients, uh, it's a little different world to be at that level and dealing with those types of uh, businesses or firms. But uh, where I am and the clients that I've built my business around local primarily a state of Ohio. And it's, it's a pretty common theme, I think, between myself and other photographers in Ohio. I ask questions once in a while, but I don't want to pry too much about what a client is doing with another photographer because I don't want to, I don't want to give them <laughs> too much information, but yeah. I'm just curious, you know, who they work with and, and what they may be getting. But I, I, you know, this is, this has worked for me very successfully. I've been in business for 35 years now. And uh, I feel that finally I understand what they want. I just have to put a price to it that they'll pay and I'm happy with. So yeah. that's kind of the, what I got to say. I think that's, that's a good point. I, I have a different pricing structure for my local clients. So for clients here in Utah, that, that their usage of the images are going to stay in Utah. That's one price. My national clients, that's a different price. And it's more along the lines of when I used to have a commercial studio and did food photography and product photography and those kinds mm -hmm. of things. And I worked with an ad agency and the licensing terms um, usually were one year on, a, on an image. Um, if they wanted longer than that, then we, or if they wanted to use it again, then we would charge them another usage fee. And so that's how I, wow. so my national one, my local pricing are completely separate. Yeah. Well, I, in an ad agency, yeah. an ad agency yeah. is a completely different animal. Yeah. And I have clients who, who work specifically with ad agencies. Their architectural clients are primarily manufacturers of architectural products, and they work with ad agencies. And so, you know, I may go out and shoot four to six shots for somebody and bill it at a rate where locally, you know, I would shoot for two or three days to get that same kind of rate. So it, it, it's just two different worlds. And I think yeah. good point, Scott, that you you got to charge what people are comfortable paying so that you stay in business. And yeah, well, I think that's one reason to just be educated when the when those nice jobs come through those big commercial jobs. So you know how to behave, because I think sometimes if you charge too little, to, particularly to those clients, they think you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. So you're, you're, you may be the lowest bid, but you won't get the job. That's right. Yeah. And sometimes you have to just kind of stick your neck out a little bit and, yeah. and push that price up a little. And, and uh, that gives you a certain level of respect in their eyes. You know what else gives Very you respect? Being, being bald, having a goatee, <laughs> and just being hey, a little bit older. Brother, my brother. <laughs> I think gray hair is an advantage in this business, quite honestly. Yeah. <laughs> Don't it's feel bad, young. It'll happen to you. <laughs> <laughs> I asked. I'll just go shave it right now. <laughs> you yeah. know what? I do have a question regarding the whole pricing structure because I'm still learning that. I'm actually just changing it now to because after listening to 
my mentors and you guys where it was like, you know, I'm hearing other photographers charge like $5,000 for 12 images. And I'm like, how the hell do I get there? Um, and then how are they doing it? So I guess it's like, how would, when, when you go scout with a client and you're like, okay, it might be this much and you probably get, you know, 12 to 15 images, but after the fact, when you shoot it, how do you adjust that? Let's say you quote 5,000 for 12 image or something like that. And then you realize that it's different. You only got eight images. Do you prorate it relative or do you still charge your day rate my, and images? My feeling is if I know what I'm getting into, so if I've scouted something and, uh, and the client doesn't make any changes, then even if it takes longer than I thought, I'm going to stick with my quote because I knew what I was mm -hmm. getting into. But when yeah. someone just says, oh, we've got this eight-shot job, how much is it going to cost? Okay, we'll do it on Tuesday. And then I get there and it's, I've had no, and I tell them that I have had no idea what this is. So this is just an estimate. So it's really how much, you know, going into it or if there are changes along the way. So if, you know, if the client wants eight shots to get there, the eight shots is going to take what you thought, but then they identify three more shots, you know, of course they're going to pay for that. But, but if I, if I scout it, they give me a shot list. I know what I'm getting into. I give them a price. I stick with it. As things change, you know, things are fluid during a shoot and things change and there's shots added. That's the time to have that conversation. Not, not after I the guess, fact when you're invoicing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess uh, the thing that I miss is that sometimes I don't, when I photograph, I don't photograph with people like for a contractor, I pull with them. Hey, you probably get 12 to 15 images, but usually on the day of, I probably could squeeze out more and then, but I don't, so I send them proof and they get to select. And then how about if they select it more? Let's say you quoted from 12 and then, but you shot like 20 images and you show them all and they're like, Hey, I want all 20. Is it prorated within that all 20 or how do you do something like that? Well, I guess that's the question here, I'm asking. Here's something you should do. You, in your estimate, you ought to have some text, some verbiage that covers that sort of scenario. So if you do that, <sighs> if you do that kind of shooting, uh, it's all about thinking ahead a couple of steps of your client. And so if you do a lot of shooting like that, just make sure you cover yourself with some uh, text that states that very clearly that you're going to be shooting more. They can buy what they want and it's going to cost X. Perfect. I guess because it's fresh. It's like literally I just did that for because I'm transitioning how, how I'm doing my pricing structure. So this is like, like a new learning curve. So that's great. Yeah. Well, just great. to complicate it, here's how I do it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no. If you're looking for clarity by asking questions to other photographers, you're barking up the wrong tree. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> sorry, sorry. Uh, being a smart ass, I, I don't charge extra for that, but, you know, uh, this is how I act with my clients too. So, um, you know, what I do is I have a number. For any kind of job I do, even when it's not architecture, I'd say you're going to get X number of images. Um, I tend to shoot a lot. I've always done it that way. Uh, so mm -hmm. if I'm contracted for 10, they're going to see 15 or 20. Yep. And um, the price is the price. And, and then uh, before I get to my point, having them make the pick, has uh, then there, there's buy-in. And I almost never get any complaints because they have picked the ones they wanted. They've said, no, this is orange, not red. Make your corrections and we're done. So when I deliver, we're basically done. I, I very rarely have to go back and do more. 
so I don't put in the pricing in advance except when I'm requested to for what extra images might be uh, because I don't know how easy it's going to be or how easy the clients were. So if I can get away without putting that number in there, and I will do it if they ask me to because, you know, I want to work. So yeah. I'll take the chance. But, you know, some clients are a breeze. Some jobs are so easy. Some photographs are the photograph. There's no blending. There's no nothing. <laughs> Maybe I'll straighten the edges out a little bit that, or crop. That's it. So yeah. I don't know until I get those extra requests what they're going to be. And also, sometimes those requests come a year later. And uh, right. so, that, yeah, that's kind of how I handle it. Well, I guess the, there the question would be, um, you know, you put them for 10, you gave them 20, but they want 13 images. Is the quote the same or do you change it? No, no, I, I had some. I had some money. I mean, my assumption is that my clients can do a little math. So it's it's a little tricky because, you know, they can go, well, uh, the price was X amount of dollars for this number. Let's divide it up. So I give them that number in a little bit less. So at least they feel like they're getting a deal, but not very much less. I mean, I'm making more money. I've got a happier client. So I don't want to be greedy. And if it, especially if, as I say, some of the images uh, are really easy and don't require a lot of posts, I do all my own posts. So mm -hmm. it's a time, it's a time issue. So if it's really a grind, I'll charge them. It just depends on what those images are they want that are extra. So it's completely situational. I know that doesn't bring any clarity, but that's, I haven't got any problem with people paying me the extra money. How does everybody make the distinction between the production cost and the licensing cost? But how how do you arrive at that number? I have a tarot card oh, number up in the night to lay out on the table. <laughs> <laughs> I throw darts, and if it hits the hundred percent, when I first started, I looked at and I, I was blown away by commercial cost and advertising. That didn't make any sense for my clients, so I, I just came up with a, a production cost and then, you know, individual image cost, and then I generally give them, um, if I do my homework, I, I give them a production cost, and I don't really go over that unless there's huge changes. But what I do, just so you, here's how I do it, and maybe some of you do it this way too. Uh, my production costs are based on a day or a half day rate. Now I have shot for say half, uh, less than a half a day, but I figure, you know, travel time is part of my time getting out of the, my office, going to the job. But basically my production time, that's my photography fee. My post-production is what I do after I come back from the job on the computer. But my production time is me as a photographer, showing up on time, getting all the images that are requested, and then I charge the I put my licensing fee in on top of that for the what I call the it that's basically the photography fee that it covers production and licensing. I don't call it out. I just have a fee. You got to keep it simple. You don't want to break it down into anything because you don't want them to get confused. So that's, for me, worked real well. 
I think this is one place where our, uh, with, with commercial advertising photographers, they are expected to break it out. But I'm like you, I keep it, I give them a number. And and I, I think that they, they get nervous when they start seeing, they think you're nickel and diming them. Whereas with commercial photography or an agency, they want to see everything broken out because they have their masters they have to answer to, the suits back at the client. Yeah. So they want to make sure they aren't getting nickel and dime by seeing exactly what everything costs. So it's, a, it, it, you know, it costs what it costs, but your client has different perceptions about what well, they again, can feel comfortable. Yeah. That's that that's that different world, the advertising agency versus the direct client. There's no comparison between what the requests are going to be and the direct clients. Uh, they want it simple. Yeah. I mean, Alan, you're you're working for agencies and national people as well as local. Has that been your exp your experience yeah. with putting together your my quotations, are, they look completely different. So yeah. if I do work for an ad agency, my quotation may be four pages long yeah. because I'm going to break out everything. I'm going to break out the, you know, the travel and the travel is going to get broken out into, you know, cars and mileage and hotels and all that kind of stuff and, and catering and per diem and whatever. For my clients that I work with directly, I show them one price and that's it. Um, and that includes... You know, my travel, assistance, stylists, um, licensing, it includes everything. So I show them just one price. So they know going in that this is the price. And like you say, I think it makes them nervous when they they see all these different line items. Uh, an agency is used to that and expects to see that and generally has to see that in order to meet the requirements of the contract. But uh, for a client that you're working with directly, like a contractor or a, um, an architect, you know, just one price is what uh, that's what I've done for the last 10 or 12 years. Anyway, uh, I've just simplified it and said, this is the fee. Yeah. And, uh, that's what it is. And I, I call out the licensing terms and all that kind of stuff. And I also include a breakdown so that it shows, if you know, what it is for two parties, three, four five and so on um and what that what that cost breakdown is going to be if they if we get into a situation of of cost sharing so that they know that they can bring people on board and it's to their advantage and if you know this job normally would cost five thousand dollars if they bring the other people in it you know it may cost them a thousand dollars so i do it that way but it's just two different completely two different worlds so you charge more though if, if you're two people are sharing right or three people you don't just split it in two. No, I, I don't do any cost splitting. I do cost sharing, and okay, and and usually, um, say say the job. You know, just to give a round number, say the job's a thousand dollars if it's one party. Um, if if there's two parties involved, um, then the I, and I use a set formula, and some people are more, some people are less, but according to my formula. If it's two parties, then that job is a fourteen hundred dollar job, and each party pays yeah. seven hundred dollars. That's kind yeah. of what I do, and that's yeah. worked well with my clients. Yeah, my clients, uh, it's it's made a huge difference. I make so much more money on the same shoot. <laughs> I don't have to work any harder, and it's just more money. So, but yeah. uh, and also, you know, with a commercial client, if you get working with an ad agency, uh, typically they're only going to ask for one year license on things. Uh, usage and so if it comes back and uh, you know a year later 
um, or somebody else wants to license it for their advertising, which I just had happen, you know, then you've got a whole different situation and that's considerably more lucrative. Well, I, I think that Alan, one of the differences that uh, some photographers, emerging photographers, I'm not including you, Young, by the, by the way, <laughs> in this, is that, you know, advertising is so fashion dependent. You know, whatever it is, you could be selling a candy bar. So they know that their usage is going to be a year, maybe two or something like this, because the clothes are going to change. The hair is going to change. They're so nervous about being uh, current. And of course, there's enough money to reshoot, um, you know, because they're making more money, too. Everybody along the line is making more money, whereas architects, they're not in that league in terms of, uh, you know, unless they're a star architect or, or big, big uh a big local firm or a big national firm. So the the whole uh, sensibility about what advertising is, is completely different. And of course, I have a question for you, Alan, as far as like your pricing structure, you add like pretty much like 40%, right? Uh, mm -hmm. 1,000, you add 1,400. Do you scale it down with more people coming in or is it just another 40%? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you the formula. Um, the, for, for two people, I, the, the multiplier is 1.4. For three people, it's 1.8. Four people is is two. Uh, five people is 2.25. Whoa! Uh, and, and so, and then it's just 2.25 you know, five, five or more. So uh, I I don't you know 2.25 is the multiplier and uh, that I end with, and so you know that gets everybody in at a certain level because I hardly ever have more than five parties, but occasionally I do. Um, yeah. And it just depends on the project, but that's again, that's for you know me working directly with a client, um, and on a, on a local project or a national project where it's like an architect or a contractor or something like that, interior designer. Okay. And I know there's people that are more than that and people that are less, but that's that's worked easy for me. Got it. How many members does the AIAP have uh, now? We're we're about five hundred. Okay. Um, and uh, I don't know why there's only just this few of us on this call. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, I'd expect to see a mosaic of that's, faces. That's kind of what I thought. I thought, gee, are, you know, our fifty spaces on this going to be enough? And yeah, <laughs> that's enough. I don't know uh, why there's not more participation in these. There's a huge number of views usually when I post this. The podcast gets uh, yeah. to death on different platforms, um, so I, I'm not sure. But yeah, we're to, we we kind of stay at about 500 is what where it's been the last few years. And uh, the real estate group that we have, the REPAI, that goes up and down, and then the aerial group is uh, the same way, and they're they're slightly less than that. But um, yeah, we stay at around 500, and so we're not at. You know, we're not a big niche in the market, <laughs> but I will say that our traffic is climbing every month on the website, particularly the directory pages. And I hear from photography buyers that that to them is such an easy way to find a photographer in whatever area of the country. And I get these nice little email notes all the time. Thank you for this directory. This made it so easy to find a photographer in such and such a state. And so. Um, you know, that's the benefit. And so I, I, if nobody wants to participate on these discussions, I guess that's okay. But I think for those of us who do, it's, it's hugely valuable and uh, a great teaching tool. So we'll keep doing it. 
Um, we're probably at a point where we need to wrap this up. Is there anything else that anybody would like to bring up before we do close? I just like to say that what I learned from the last session about uh, doing posts on LinkedIn, and there's a new service from LinkedIn called Alignable. Uh, I've been making posts and it's worked worked really well. I, I appreciate that feedback. Great. There, there are a couple of things I wanted to bring up before we uh, sign off here. And one of them is uh, the power of a press release. Now, I know a lot of you don't do those and uh, most of us don't. But it's easy to put one together. And um, I worked in an advertising agency years ago. And, um, you know, we used to say it's time to put on the snow tires. We need more traction for this client. So that would be the press release. And so we would start start really pounding press releases out. Uh, But they're so easy to distribute to your local media. You've probably got in your local area. Um, a construction magazine or an architect magazine or something like that. You just need to find those out. If you're not getting those, you, you can probably get them for free anyway. Um, also, any kind of uh, local publication that draws attention to, uh, you know, the industry as far as architecture, interior design or things like that. Sending out a press release that says that you just completed the photography for such and such a project and then you include a sample image and that kind of thing. Um, I think that's really valuable. It gets us huge uh, traction, uh, the stuff that, I, that we send out for my business. Um, so I'd recommend that. And uh, the, the other one uh, that I think is important is we continue to talk about networking with uh, the trade groups like AIA and, and SMPS, uh, ASID, those kinds of things. Uh, those are easy to just you know, pay, pay the, pay the 10 bucks and go to one of their socials or something and just meet people. And at least they've got a name to, and a face to put together now, you know, they know who you are and, and that can be really huge as far as establishing new relationships in your market. So anyway, just leave you with those two thoughts. Uh, gentlemen, thank you for your participation today. This has been a great discussion and very valuable for me. And I hope for everyone else. And we will plan to see you back here again next month. I will send out an invitation like we've done before. And this video will post, probably it's going to be a little over a week before this one goes up as far as the video on YouTube and then the podcast. But uh, this will be edited down so that uh, you can take out all the stutters from my voice and uh, we'll edit it for time just a little bit. But again, thank you and all the best of luck in your local businesses. We hope to see you again next month. Thank you. Thank you. you. This has been another episode of A Photographer's Life. If you've enjoyed this program, please let us know by liking this episode and subscribing to this channel. A Photographer's Life is brought to you by the Association of Independent Architectural Photographers. This episode is copyrighted and may not be used in full or in part without the written permission of the AIAP. Please join us again soon for another inside look at the world of professional architectural photography.